talking about Elihu, and this has kind of been the introduction to Elihu. And last week we talked about some of his negative components, or at least perceived as negative components, this angry young man vibe that he puts off, and that he's very, he's very wordy. Oh, such a great Dick DeWitt joke story just came to mind, but I'm, I'm going to resist. Um, ask me about wordiness later. The, the major difference that Elihu establishes between himself and the friends that have come before are not things that are based on Elihu, though. The, the text starts there. He's the younger. He's angry. He has a lot to say. He's been biting his tongue. But what Elihu emphasizes as the difference between himself and the other comforters is the source of his message, the source and the authority. The other friends have been quoting the system, this, this how things work as they see it and understand it. One of them claimed to have uh, a, a direct personal revelation from God that nobody else had. And Elihu's going to come in and say, uh, no, God has revealed himself. <laughs> and this is what we know about how God has revealed himself. The, the source and authority of his message are central. And in Christopher Ashe's book in this chapter, he takes it in one direction, which is about prophecy and what Elihu says and teaches us about prophecy. Uh, first, that it's possible that uh, when you need truth spoken into a situation in human existence, it is at least possible that God would speak. Culture is sort of one potential source of authority. Seniority, age, is, is a potential source of authority. That's what the other comforters have been relying on. But there's another potential source of authority. This is what Elihu calls the spirit in man and the breath of the Almighty. Uh, Daphne, will you read 32, 6 through 10? Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak, and many years teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. So one category of authority comes from age, experience. Another category can come from God putting his word, his life, his spirit, his breath to give understanding. And because that is possible. Now, is that always what's happening when somebody claims it's what's happening? No, there's false prophets. <laughs> uh, one of Elihu's comforters claimed to have divine authority behind what he was saying. So there's false prophecy. But the fact that true prophecy is possible means there's always going to be a trump card. And that trump card is going to be God has said. So we can reason a lot of things in as far as it goes from general revelation. This is the whole science versus faith, quote unquote, debate. God gave us minds. He gave us reason and rationality. He gave us a created order that has lots of evidence that we can study and think through and seek to understand. And insofar as human reason goes, 
our senses are reliable. They're trustworthy. We, we should trust our understanding of the evidence as we find it until it contradicts with what God has said. Prophecy is more certain. It's more sure. Not because there are false facts out there, but because we don't have all the information and our minds don't reason perfectly with the information that we have. You can have all the facts and still conclude incorrectly. And many times we conclude incorrectly because we don't even have all the facts. What's the famous philosophical story about people who are blindfolded and they're, they're touching different parts of an elephant and trying to reason as to what it is? And if you get the tusk or if you get the toenail or if you get the leg or if you get the, the brush on the tail, that's the only fact you have. And if you have to guess what it is, you're not going to think elephant. That's general revelation. That's human reason. That's the wisdom that comes from experience and tradition. It's not necessarily wrong, and it's definitely not bad. But because prophecy is possible, we always have to have a certain amount of humility about what we think we know. That's the philosophical field of epistemology, how we know what we know. And the most important thing that separates great epistemology philosophers from terrible ones is what they call epistemological humility. It's just the idea that we don't know it all and we don't even reason correctly from the things that we do know. And so because prophecy is possible, nothing can ever claim ultimate authority except God's word. And that's key to all of our evangelistic and apologetic conversations too, isn't it? What faith conversations come down to is always the question of ultimate authority. When you get to the very last but why question, no matter how many but whys you have along the way, you're going to get to an ultimate but why question. And that very last question has an answer. It has an answer in your mind. Your life will live it out when push comes to shove. Whatever answers that but why question will determine how you live and what you believe. That is your ultimate authority. Ultimate authority isn't just about obedience. It's about understanding how you make sense of reality, how you interpret reality. And to be a Christian, you must get to that final why and say, because God has said. That's the only thing that can ever be at the top of that stack, thank you, is because God has said. If it's, well, because I grew up Presbyterian, this is what we've always done, or Murica, or any other thing you want to substitute in there, you have an ultimate authority problem. And you're actually rejecting Christianity, as dramatic and extreme as that sounds. You're fundamentally rejecting Christianity if when you get to the top of that stack, you have something other than the Word of God. And I do mean the Word of God. The Roman Catholic Church gets to the top of that stack and has the Word of God plus tradition. That's not okay. Why tradition? Uh, we don't like what the Word of God says without it. That's the candid answer. <laughs> Right, which, hey, I'm sympathetic sometimes, but uh, I, I don't think I have permission to start a religion over it. So prophecy is possible. 
we also find out, though, prophecy is necessary. Kathy, will you read 11 through 16? Behold, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention, and behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. Beware, lest you say we have found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not a man. He has not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. They are dismayed. They answer no more. They have not a word to say. And shall I wait, because they do not speak, because they stand there and answer no more? Think specifically about Job's situation. Why is prophecy necessary? Because without it, there were no answers. The comforters tried to answer Job's dilemma apart from prophecy. They tried to answer it from experience. They tried to answer it from human philosophy. They tried to answer it from age and the authority that comes with that. And and now they stand there silent because they have nothing to say. They could not answer him. Prophecy is necessary because there are some things we could never answer unless God spoke. And that's really critical. Yes, there are a whole lot of things that God in his grace has given us answers to in in natural revelation that we can understand. We've, I mean, we figured out gravity. Good for us. (laughs) But there are things that we can never understand unless God says, here is the answer. And that's why prophecy is not just possible, but it's necessary. They have no answer to the problem of pain. They have no answer to Job's circumstance. And yet, they're claiming to be wise. I mean, this is a Romans 1 problem. People claim to be wise because they have tremendous amounts of natural revelation. They claim to be wise because they have a lot of facts they have accumulated from things as they are. It is not possible to be wise without the presence of prophecy in your life. It is not possible to be wise apart from special revelation, apart from knowing what God has said. It's possible to be right about something, but it is not possible to be wise. That's not what wisdom is. Wisdom isn't having a collection of of truthful facts in your brain. Wisdom is understanding the nature of reality. And you cannot be wise apart from prophecy apart from what God has said. Can I just quickly ask a question? Uh, when you say prophecy, are you equating that with special revelation? That's yeah, sorry, let me clarify on that. When we hear the word prophecy, we're often thinking about predictions about the future. That is a kind of prophecy. That's called predictive prophecy. But if you zoom up one level and you're just talking about the word prophecy, the word prophecy is words from God to man. That's what prophecy means. All words from God to human beings, that is prophecy. Sometimes it's through a prophet. Sometimes it's through a dream. Not much anymore. But anything that Hebrews 1 1 says God used to do when he spoke and the things that God now does in his speech, which is through Jesus Christ, all of that is prophecy. That's a great correction because predictive prophecy, saying what's going to happen in the future, is how the word gets used the most today. And it's how God speaks the least today. God has nothing to say about the future that he hasn't already said. Revelation says that at the beginning and the end. 
do you, anybody ever notice like the amount of time the Christian TV channels spend talking about the future and this word from God? And the book that they rely on the most, Revelation, begins and ends by saying, if you add or remove words from this book, you're not on God's team. <laughs> just, just a thought. So yes, that's what I mean by prophecy. Prophecy is necessary. Uh, uh, pr prophecy is possible. Prophecy is also necessary. We don't have answers without it. And this may be too speculative. Uh, what is Elihu? In, in this context, prophecy is because they don't have the scriptures. Uh, we're assuming at this point, Job is. Yes. So uh, you weren't in here last week, were you? Yeah. No. Yeah, no. Uh, Elihu is a tr is a true prophet. Okay. He's either a true prophet or a false prophet. When we get to his message, we're going to have to deal with that. But he's a prophet in the same way that Isaiah is a prophet or Ezekiel's a prophet, or else he's a false prophet and all this goes wrong and he should have been stoned. Uh, but he is making the claim to be a messenger of God's word. That is his claim. Third, prophecy is urgent. Uh, Jake, do you have verse numbers? <laughs> Can you read 17 through 22? I also will answer with my share. I also will declare my opinion. For I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. I love seeing so many smiles with uh, everybody thinking of different members of their family or friend group when Elihu says his mouth is full of words. Uh, he is full of words. And he's, I mean, this picture that you get of him is really fun because it's this, if, if you're not careful, he comes across as this somewhat impetuous young man who's just bursting at the seams to get his opinion in. I'll say real positive things about Elihu that counteract that in just a moment, but it's definitely that he has a lot to say and he feels like he's been biting his tongue for a long time. So if it's possible that God would put truth into the mouth of a human, that prophecy is possible, and if no human uh, authority has an answer to the sufferings of a righteous man, you can't figure out the answer to the problem of pain by looking at the world. I mean, most of us have tried. You, there's no answer there. And that's what Job's friends tried. There's no answer there. So if those two things are true, then a third is true, which is that prophecy is urgent. And that's what Elihu comes back to here. He must speak. This must be said. The problem is real. God has an answer to the problem. The problem is not in human wisdom, but it's from the mouth of God. And so Elihu must speak. Someone must speak. It's essential that God be heard as having an answer to this. And so the voice of prophecy is urgent. Uh, let me say some positive things about Elihu before we get into his message in chapter 33. Because it is easy to hear the anger in his voice, to the, the quantity of his words, his own self-admission that he's sort of bursting at the seams to speak, and to have a negative take on Elihu. And I don't think that's right. Uh, Derek Thomas points out several things about Elihu, besides the fact that he's a prophet of God that we'll get to in a minute, that are admirable. First, Elihu was a good listener. It's going to come out in Elihu's speech 
that he heard every word that was said. He was standing there the whole time these cycles of speeches were happening. He's going to quote Job verbatim. He's going to quote what he heard in the previous speeches. It takes a good listener to have this much to say, boiling up within you to the point of anger for that length of time where he doesn't speak. He just listens. And he actually heard what was said. And that is very hard. Think about how hard it is not to interrupt someone when they are four sentences into a paragraph that you know is wrong. He does it for all the cycles of speeches. And he just stands there and listens. That's a pretty incredible trait to be that sort of listener. Secondly, Elihu is courteous. Why does he say he didn't speak up yet? Because these guys are old and he's young. And as a matter of courtesy, he needs to show deference to their desire to speak. And it's interesting, he seems to wait until they have nothing else to say. It's not like he let them take their turn and now he's going to take his and expect them to come back. He waits until they're done. He waits until they have said, we have nothing else to say, Job. You're not worth talking to. So it's very courteous, the deference that he shows there. Third, Elihu takes no credit for his wisdom. Yes, he has lots to say. Yes, his mouth is filled with words. But he says, this is the spirit. This is the breath of the Almighty that gives wisdom. He says that what he has to say is not because he has some experience or something that he's gathered himself that is speaking truth into the situation. He says he has something to say only because God has put the words in his mouth. Now again, that could end up being a true claim or a false claim, but uh, if it's true, it is a God-glorifying claim that anything I say that's worthwhile was from the Spirit of God. That's a good posture for a prophet, for a preacher to have. Um, questions about that? And then the critical response to Elihu, I said last week, is, is pretty negative. If you read earlier commentaries, older than maybe the last 10 years, there are a few scattered ones that have a positive view of Elihu. But by and large, the dominant understanding of Elihu until more recently has been pretty negative that uh, he's egocentric, he's brash, he's, uh, his, his speech is basically uh, irrelevant, he's angry, he's just repeating the things that have been said before. Uh, I, I agree with the commentators who say that view is, is not right, that he is a prophet that is setting the stage for God himself to speak, that he's bridging the gap between these false counselors who only have the wisdom of man and therefore cannot answer the problem of pain, to God, who's obviously God and therefore can give an answer to the problem of pain. And then you have this one human in the middle who is trying to answer the problem of pain with God's truth from a human perspective and experience, which is going to be muddled. It's going to, it's going to miss some of the finer details, which Elihu does, can be right in concept and a little bit wrong in application, 
Uh, and I wouldn't even say he's wrong in application. I'd say he's missing. He doesn't have all the facts. And then we also need to give Elihu credit for being passionate. He says he must speak. Remember the context. It, it, he, he, it's easy to think that this is some philosophical or theological argument, and Elihu just wants to be heard to win the argument. That's not the context here at all, is it? Isn't the context a suffering man in a burning ash heap who's asking God and his friends for answers, and three of his friends have blamed the victim? And, I mean, that's the context. And Elihu must speak. He, he believes what he says. He means what he says. He believes Job deserves an answer and God has an answer and it is absolutely silent in this part of the book unless Elihu speaks and Elihu's going to fill that void and, and uh, feel called to that moment. So that's what's happening with Elihu. Elihu is wordy. I mean, you think about it. We are 20-something verses in. How many? We are 24 verses in. And all he said so far is, I'm getting ready to say some stuff. I have some things to say. For 24 verses, he says this. Uh, now at the beginning of 33, he'll turn to Job. He will, he will speak to him uh, personally. He will actually get to the point. But it has taken him a long time to get to this point. And what Elihu's going to do is first he's going to tell Job that Job should listen to him. So we've got seven verses in chapter 33 that are still warm up. And then he's going to get to his message. And what he's going to try to do is answer three arguments that Job put forth that his friends were not otherwise able to answer. And that's what he's going to be dealing with. So let's start with the appeal, the fact that he must be heard. Pam, do you have, can you do 33, 1 through 7? Uh-huh, yeah. Elahu rebukes Job. But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth. The tongue in my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart. And what my lips know, they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am towards God as you are. I, too, was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. Okay, this is essential. You've got to get this part of the speech to get Elihu. And this is why I view him so positively. You've got to understand what he's doing here with the language and how he's tying it back to what's happened before in Job. The words that he uses are courtroom words. When he uses the word answer and prepare, this is courtroom language. He's setting Job up for a kind of trial. We're going to have an argument session like a courtroom to figure out the facts of the situation. So our minds have to go to, okay, Job in a courtroom. What happened, this is not the first time in the book of Job we've had courtroom language, is it? Job has used courtroom language before when he's dealing with his idiot friends and he says, I can't get any justice here. I want to go to a courtroom and be in front of God and present my facts and yeah, I'll need a mediator, but I really want my day of justice where I stand in the courtroom before God and have this adjudicated. 
But what happened, see this really requires you to have read Job carefully. What happened the other times in the book of Job that Job does that thought experiment of, I want to be in a courtroom with God where I present my case. It was chapter 9 and chapter 13, and both times Job starts going down that path, sort of thought experiment, and then both times he realizes, except, oh no, that's God, and I'm a man, and this is going to go badly for me. God is too great for me to enter into a courtroom with. He's too wise. He has everything on his side and nothing on mine. And so both times, 9 and 13, he's in a courtroom. He's ready to have the argument session. He's ready to make his case. And both times, he's submitted into silence by his own knowledge about God. He said, I can't make this argument before God. It's just, it wouldn't work. (laughs) He's God and I'm not. So what does Elihu say? Elihu says, Job, come into the courtroom. Let's have the argument session. I'll put it to you. You give an answer to me. And then what does Elihu say at the end of what Pam read? Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy on you. You can actually have this argument with me, Job. I'm not God. I am the same as you. Exactly. There's, and that is such a gentle spirit. This young, fire-breathing man who has a lot to say wants Job to say it, wants to have this argument out because he thinks that Job has made three arguments, at least, that are false. But he also wants Job to feel comfortable having the argument, to feel comfortable answering the summons and having the courtroom conversation because after all, Job, I'm no better than you. I'm just a creature too. And so it shouldn't be so scary for us to hash this out. And that, to me, is the defining context of Elihu. Elihu is providing Job, the audience, an opportunity to do what Job says he wants to do, what Job in many ways has a right to do, without doing it in front of God. Now, Job's going to go on and do it in front of God anyway, and we're going to see how that turns out. But Elihu is providing him the, the right context to ask these questions, which is among fellow humans. Yeah, I don't see how you get egocentric out of that. I mean, it's such a really kind and almost humble word. I mean, it, you do out of that, but go back and read 32. <laughs> 32, he comes across like a, a I'll, I'll be nice to myself and say like a 25-year-old me, yeah. and then I'll let the rest of you chuckle under your breaths. Uh, yeah, he, he is, he's not God. He's not perfect. He genuinely cares about both Job and more than Job, about God, about God's honor. He's going to defend God's honor in these accusations that Job has made against God, but he's not just doing it to prove Job wrong. He's doing it because Job, these wrong answers are leading Job astray, potentially. Questions about that, and then we'll look into Job's, uh, the three arguments that Elihu will make. All right, first, argument number one. Oh, wait, hold on. Let me see what Ash says here. Let's cry. 
Yeah. All right. Um, the next verses, Renee, can you read 8 through 13? Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. You say I am pure without transgression. I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Behold, in this you are not right. I will not answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying he will answer none of man's words? Elihu summarizes what Job has said. That Job is not guilty before God and that, that God has um, unfairly treated Job as an enemy. And, and the obvious implication there is that God has acted in an unjust way. That's the, that's the point of Job's argument. And Elihu wants to take issue with that. He wants to deal with that argument. Now, remember, very, very important. Job is not claiming sinlessness. Elihu does not think Job is claiming sinlessness. They're using the same words here. Uh, Elihu, it's hard for us to understand because we don't like the idea of anybody having a pure heart or being blameless or blah, blah, blah. But the, the way that Job is using these words, God agrees. He's an upright man. Elihu gets that argument. He's not quibbling with that part of it. What he's quibbling with is that just because you are upright, nothing evil could ever befall you. Nothing bad could ever happen to you. Because upright is not perfect. You're not claiming to be perfect. You're claiming to walk with God. That's good. But your Job then sort of whitewashes away the fact that there's a difference between what he's claiming and perfect. And what perfect moral perfection might deserve and what Job is. And there's a gap there. And Elihu's saying, when God operates in that gap, you can't accuse him of injustice. You're not the sinless one. You're not. And so it's one thing for you to say, I haven't done anything particularly wicked that my friends are accusing me of, whereby I would deserve some sort of direct punishment for it. That's fine. But Job's argument has gone further and further down that line to he doesn't deserve anything except good. And Elihu says, no, God is not unjust when he treats fallen creatures as fallen creatures. Even when God brings pain into our lives, not as discipline, but as a, as a teaching tool, not as correction, but as a, a positive element of instruction, is that unjust? No, he's working with fallen sinful humans. If we weren't fallen, we wouldn't need sanctification. If we weren't fallen, we wouldn't need to put sin to death in our lives. So the fact that we're walking with God and that we have genuine faith is great. That's essential. But that doesn't mean that God is therefore unjust if he does anything in our life that's hard, that also makes us more like Christ. That's the argument Elijah is making here. You've made a logical leap, Job, 
from the things you say about yourself that are true, but now you're applying as if God should do what would only be true if you were not fallen, if there was nowhere left for God to grow you. And Elihu doesn't say it here, but it will become, it, it's what comes out over the course of these speeches, is there is the latent hidden sin of self-righteousness in Job's life. And God is using the suffering to pull that out of him, to reveal it. Otherwise, Job would go through his whole life never knowing that he had it and therefore never seeking to put it to death. If Job doesn't go through this, he never gets to the point in his life where he says, I spoke and should not have. <laughs> I thought too highly of myself and too lowly of God. And if our goal is to be more like Christ, and we know God's goal is for all of us to be more like Christ, isn't Job more like Christ when he sees God as God and himself as himself, rather than at this moment when he sees himself as almost God? That's danger. Never would have come out without the pain. And so Elihu says there's a difference between what you are, and you know that, Job, and this unfallen creator God. <laughs> and you're saying that because God doesn't treat you like God, God is unjust. And that's a false accusation. That cannot be the case here. Um, and that's why, incidentally, Elihu gets so angry about this, is that self-righteousness makes you pretty mad, doesn't it? When you encounter it? <laughs> Doesn't self-righteousness make you mad? Person claiming the moral high ground when in fact they have none? That's infuriating. And that's what Job is doing here. Initially unintentionally, he'll dig in a little bit on this point until God ferrets him out. Um, but that's what's happening here. He can't charge God with injustice because, as the point will be made first by Elihu and then by God, a fact that Job already knows. God is God and you are not. Pretty simple fact. Job claims to know it. Therefore, God's ways are not our ways. And the hardest one for us to get, it's very okay. I think we're all very comfortable saying God's ways are not our ways. We sometimes get very uncomfortable saying God knows best. God knows best is harder than God's ways are different than my ways. Derek Thomas says, we must be prepared to come to the point where we say, I do not understand why, but I believe that he does best and I accept it. This is the very heart of faith to believe in God's love when everything is pointing in a contrary direction. That is the heart of faith. That's what's so hard. And when this is happening to Job, he's now gotten himself to a point where he says, nothing about God matters. What matters is about me and that I don't deserve this. And he's forgotten that you don't ever get to start with nothing about God matters. God is God. You're not. He does what's best. And so this idea that God is unjust, that God has been particularly unjust, unfair toward Job, Elihu says, Job, that argument is not going to cut it around here. Um, 
Chris Ash says, Elihu will not tell Job he's suffering because he has sinned. Instead, he will rebuke him for saying sinful and wrong things because he is suffering. The whole argument of the three friends. You sinned, therefore you suffer. And Elihu comes along and says, you have suffered and you are sinning in that suffering. Flips the paradigm. And again, I think that becomes the whole... Um, we know, just as a reminder, high level, primary reason any of this happens to Job is that God is defending his honor in the heavenly court. God has lots of reasons for why he does things. So when we say, what was God's reason for doing this in Job's life? It's to pull that sin out of him. It's to put him in a context where that sin could be exposed to the light of scrutiny so that Job could put the sin to death and walk even more closely with God than he was walking before. And that is really hard for us, isn't it? That God would create, for lack of a better term, create suffering in your life, even if you're walking closely with God, that he would create suffering so that through it you would walk even more closely with him. You are a, I'm making up numbers because none of us are even close to this, you are a 95% law keeper. 95% of the time, you keep the law of God and walking with God. And God would bring indescribable suffering into your life to get you to 96. And we would say, no, that's not worth it. Not worth it. And God says, 1% closer walk with me is worth anything you fear to imagine. And he's right. He's right. Oh, how awful that sounds. <laughs> right? But that's what Job's going through here. And so it's not injustice. It's in the heavenly court. It's perfect justice. And in Job's life, it's an act of love. It's a good thing. Because nothing, and we want, what we want is a third alternative that doesn't exist. We want God to do something else. We want God to do the not painful thing that gives us the closer walk with him. It doesn't exist. God always does what is best. Always what is best. That's a definition we start with. He always does what is best. And so that means by definition, this way of God getting me from 95 to 96% is best. There was nothing else that would have done it better. And... That's where you just have to say, God's ways are not our ways. Like, I cannot fathom that that is true, except, back to ultimate authority, God said it's true. Argument number two. We're doing on time. Uh, Nick, can you read, uh, let's do 13 through 22. Why do you contend against him, saying he will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way, and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on man, or men, while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings, that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the, from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword, Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed, 
and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread, and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit, and his life to those who bring and bring death, if there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand, to declare to man what is right for him. Where am I going to? I thought it was 21, sorry. It, all, it bleeds to get 22 to 28 is the next part, yeah. Waiting for me to look like I was done. All right, what's Job's second argument that Elihu's going to take issue with? First one was that God's unjust. What's the second argument? He says it right here at the beginning, verse 13. God doesn't answer prayers. God doesn't speak to his people. That's the argument. And Elihu's going to say, actually he does. And he speaks in a multitude of ways. And then Elihu's going to talk about the ways that God speaks. He also says, hey, Job, this isn't just you. Verse 14, people miss the fact that God's speaking all the time. God speaks. He speaks repeatedly. And people miss it all the time. And then he's going to talk about two of the ways that God speaks. Um, the first is going to be the, the language is of dreams and nightmares, internal dialogue. The modern word we put on that is conscience. God speaks through conscience. He speaks through uh, internal ponderings and conviction that he puts within us. That's verses 15 through 18. Elihu uses four words uh, for dreams and visions, and I think the fact that he uses so many different words is supposed to clue us into, he's talking about categories here. He's not talking specifically about uh, nightmares. And they're passive ways. They're, they're ways where God opens the ears of men, verse 16. And the fact that he gives us conviction about sin. You know, this is one of those things that we need to, we need to be very comfortable with some imprecise language here. But you know exactly what he's talking about. When you do something that you ought not to do and you feel as though I should not have done that. What do you think that is? And, and Elihu's saying that's the voice of God. That's through conscience. When you, we, we use this language all the time, and it's very imprecise, which makes us uncomfortable. But when you talk about having a sense of peace about something, and again, all these things can be used wrongly. We, that's a caveat we've put at the beginning, right? Pagan's going to pagan. <laughs> but... You know what it is to say, I just really wasn't at peace about that decision. I really wish I hadn't said that. I really wish I hadn't done that. There's the obvious ones that are sin, but then there's this whole other category of ones that if you just looked at it on paper, you could defend. It's not necessarily sinful, but in your spirit, you know, that's not right. That's not good. Shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have said that. Should that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about this conviction of sin that protects us from sin. 
that protects us from death and judgment, that gives us a, a moment's pause to reconsider what we've done and to repent where is necessary. Um, and that's one of the ways that God speaks to us even when we don't realize it. Questions about that? We'll stop there because the next one is that God speaks to us through suffering. And that's not a two and a half minute discussion.